to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. I've been doing this podcast since September of 2012, and boy, are my lips tired. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. Louis and Anne-Marie can't join us today. Louis's got a little internet issue going on, so he can't connect, and Anne-Marie's got some family stuff going on, so she won't be joining us this week either. I, I believe, let's see, where we're at. We're at the 12th if we're recording this, so I believe next week we'll have Anne-Marie, but not Louis, so just kind of prepare for that, but that's okay. I still have a guest joining me today. This is going to be a fun interview. This is going to be really, really fun. This guy's name is Vic Ferrari. He's a former New York Police Department officer. And this is, I mean, this guy's got stories. It, it's one of those things, you know, you hear about people who have been in the department for years. Many of them won't say anything about what they're doing. Others will say some stuff. A few are tell-all. This guy's in the third category. He just, like, tells everything. So we're, we're going to hear some great stories today. This is going to be fun. So, Vic Ferrari, thank you for joining me, first of all. How are you doing? I'm great, Walt. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Glad to have it. Give us, like, the, the potted biography. How long were you with the department? Um, I grew up in the Bronx, lower middle class kid, um, always wanted to be a New York City police officer and detective. Uh, I joined the academy and I went into the police department in 1987. I retired t- 2007. I did 20 years on the head. Nice. All right. Yeah. And this is something I've always wondered about. I, I know that a, to a large degree, it makes a difference just how passionate you are about your job, but it's a job that can wear you down a lot. And, and did, I mean, did you find that? Like after 20 years, you were done or did you find that you were done before that or could you have kept going, but you changed your mind because of other stuff? I mean, what was your mindset at that point? You know, it's funny you should say that because I never gave retirement. I never thought of it. I mean, even getting hired, I didn't even know what a pension was. I just, I wanted action. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, get into car chases and arrest bad guys. Really? Okay. Okay. Yeah, everything a little boy, you know, cops and robbers. Mm-hmm. And Things were changing. The department was changing. I was in the same office for 10 years. And probably about a year, year and a half before I got out, I started looking around the office and I said, you know, I've been here eight and a half, nine years. The personnel has changed so much. There's younger people coming in with different ideas. And everybody outlives their usefulness. That, that's the truth in life and any job. And I said, you know, I, I, I look no further that I had a lieutenant that did close to 40 years with the NYPD and he loved it. But loving the NYPD is like loving something that's never going to love you back. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it can turn on you. So I said, you know, get out when the going is good. Okay. And I retired after 20. Like I started counting down the days a year and a half, a year and a half before I started making my exodus plans of, you know, what I was going to do and so forth. And, And what have you done since you left? Well, I moved down to Florida uh, after 20 years with the NYPD. I became a cop down here in Florida for a small police department. And the funny thing is, so I went from working in America's largest police department, working with organi- working organized crime cases, to now I'm back on the road. And it was like getting thrown into a bad episode of Reno 911. You know, now I'm chasing <laughs> guys. Now at 40 years old, right? Uh, and that's a young man's game being on the road. I'm chasing like dirt bags that are hiding under kiddie pools in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And I'm back to doing, you know, dealing with domestic violence and drunk driving. And I said, you know, what, what did I do? Like, I, I thought I wanted this again. And I was like, no. So I re-retired. And uh, at the bequest of friends and family, they said, you got all these, you know, great stories. Why don't you start writing them? And I was hesitant. But um, like you said, I, I said, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to get anybody divorced or in mm-hmm. trouble. So with my books, I changed the names, the dates, the ranks, the location. Oh, okay. But these things, these things have happened. Mm-hmm. It's just I move things around. I, I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy. Right, if I right. Somebody, I'm not going to out them or humiliate them. That that's just not the way I roll. That's good, and I like that. And and that's a good solution. Just you know, treating it like a fiction story, but it's not a fiction story. Just change the names and. You know, now now it's more generic. It's not, oh, well, that's what this guy did or that's what that officer right. did or anything like that. Yeah, okay. And, well, it's also smart, too, because you maintain your friendships that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, yeah, so when I wrote these books, I, I'm telling you, I went through all the process of self-publishing, and I, 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 my finger was on that hit, that enter button to upload it onto Amazon. Right, right. 
And I said, do I, you know, I've, I've done a year and a half of my life investing in this. Do I really like, is there going to be blowback? And there wasn't. I mean, everybody started reaching out to me like, I know who you're talking about in this story. You should have wrote about this guy. And like, <laughs> I thought my critics, like they were coming out of the woodwork and they're like, no, fuck this guy. You should have wrote about this. <laughs> You know, now I have my friends feeding me things and reminding me of things. No kidding. Is yeah. that why you, you said before we got started that you'd written four books about your experience. Is that why you wrote more than one? I wrote the first one and just just as a fluke to see what would happen, and it started selling. And then I start and the reviews. We'd love to you know hear more of these stories. And I said, all right, you know, give them what they want. So sure. I just I just started writing about a book a year. Okay. All right. Do you have more coming on on that subject? Yeah, uh, as we speak, I'm writing another NYPD theme book. Okay, very good. Yeah, and then you told me you have two other books you've written. Tell us about those. Yeah, I, I wrote, my my latest is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's got a picture of a kid getting chased out of a confessional. Yeah. Yes, it did happen to me. Really? Yeah, confessing one sin too many to an angry Irish priest who wants to go home to dinner can lead to a foot chase to a to an empty church. Yeah, um, growing up in the Bronx. Um, I was in eighth grade and my dad said, um, next year you go to Catholic high school. I was like, what? We don't even go to mass. Like what? <laughs> and he goes, no, you're a clown. And if I send you to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown. So pick a school run by the men in black. And that's exactly what happened. And I didn't want to go to Catholic high school, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me other than the NYPD. And it, it, it instilled discipline in me and the teachers, they were rough on us, but they cared. You know what I mean? It was, um, I came from public school and like I write in one of the stories, like as long as we didn't smell or make too much noise, no one said anything to us. Catholic high school was like, you know, the first couple of months was like going to a prison. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was no screwing around and there was corporal punishment back then. So, you know, if you stepped out of line, you'd get a crack. And, you know, I go into that about corporal punishment and I mean, did I get hit sometimes when I didn't deserve it? Yeah, but it more than made up for the times that I got away with things. So it all happened <laughs> out at the end of the day. This, so uh, now I have to ask this one too. Which is the tougher kind of person, a nun or a lieutenant? Oh, a nun. Oh, yeah, a nun. There's a story in my book. We, My friend lived across the street from Preston High School. We used to play wiffle ball. And we'd play wiffle ball watching the girls come out of school. Like, we weren't even into wiffle ball. We wanted to watch the girls come out. Yeah, sure. Actually, while we were doing that shit, J-Lo was going to Preston High School. I mean, she was. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> but yeah, she was going to that school. So we would hit the wiffle balls, and they would go over the fence. And then we would go into the grounds of Preston and trape through the English garden. And the nuns would warn us, like, stop coming in here. We don't want you in here. Then they started locking the gate and then we started hopping the fence mm. and then they went undercover. Like they traded in like their outfits for like pantsuits and Mary Janes. And one day I'm in there like collecting wiffle balls and a couple of them came behind a tree and said, don't move. And I got a couple of nuns pointing finger guns at me <laughs> and I took off running. I hopped the fence and I told my friend, I said, I'm never going back there again. So I, there's a couple of stories in there about nuns, but yes, definitely. And I actually... I actually recovered, I actually got a, two nuns who stole a Mother Superior's car. Well, Mother Superior w was away for the weekend. These two nuns in Westchester County stole Mother Superior's car and they went for a shopping spree in the Bronx. Really? And they parked their car in a pizzeria parking lot that had one of those signs like, you will be towed if you don't eat in this restaurant. Oh, right, right. They get their car towed and we get flagged down by these two attractive young women in nuns outfits. And I thought, in that neighborhood, you had the College of Mount St. Vincent and Manhattan College. So I thought it was a sorority prank. Uh -huh. So I got these two crying nuns, and they're like young. I mean, they're only a couple of years old, older than me. And they're going on about Mother Superior's car, and we don't have $100, and we can't get it out. Can you talk to the tow guy? And I started believing them. I put these two nuns in the car. I go to this tow yard. And if anyone's ever gotten their, tow, their car towed, you know people in the towing business they're not nice. They're not sympathetic to their, your plight. They don't give a shit that you got your car towed. It's F you pay me. So I tried to sweet talking this guy. He wouldn't go for it. I went back to the precinct. I went to my locker. I got some money. And if you've ever lent anybody money, you know what a pain in the ass is getting it back. I give this nut a hundred bucks and she swears on a stack of Bible. She's going to pay me. Hmm. It's my phone number. And she goes, I will call you. I'll get your money. It's like, yeah, okay. No problem. I figured I'm never going to see see you here from this woman again. 
about three weeks later, I was, I was between apartments. I was in my early twenties. So I'm living with my parents and you know, back then there's no cell phones. And I come through the door and my dad goes, um, sister Samantha called looking for you. And I said, Oh, all right. You got the number. And he goes, sister Samantha. And I go, dad, she's a nun. She's not a Motown singer. And he goes, a nun? It's really a nun calling here? So I call the nun back at, at the rectory or the nunnery or whatever you want to call it, or convent. And um, it was like a cloak and dagger movie. I went up to Westchester County. I went to this park that was a couple of blocks from the convent. And I sat on a park bench feeding ducks. And she came like through the woods <laughs> with an envelope. It's like a spy movie. She it's like a drug deal is what that is. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she had a drop, right? A dead drop. So she hands me an envelope with a hundred bucks. And she's thanking me and thank you so much. And please keep this under your hat. And, you know, Mother Superior would be very upset. I said, I'm not gonna, who am I going to tell? You know what I mean? But, uh, and it was funny because I said, you know, I said, you're a young woman. I said, you know, like, you sure you, you know, this is the right path you chose? And she goes, yeah, what about you? Are you? And I said, yeah, I'm happy with it. And I never saw her again. Called her a couple of times. We, we kept in touch for about a year or so. And then I, you know, kind of fell out. But yeah. You, there's never a dull moment in the NYPD. Apparently, yeah. Now, there are lots of reputations, mostly um, uh, perpetrated by television and movies, about what New York and New York crime is like. What's the truth? As far as? Well, in comparison to what we see on television or in the movies. Oh, well, th the only television show that gets it right, in my opinion, is Law and Order. Because you have a crime committed... Detectives show up, they're interviewing people, they're going back and forth with the district attorney's office, they're building a case, they go lock the guy up, then there's interviews, and then it goes to trial. On regular television shows, like I always love on TV shows and movies where the cops get into a shooting and like later that, that night they're in a bar having a couple of cocktails. It doesn't work that way. Say you and I are doing a seven to three shift, seven in the morning till three at night. At 8 o'clock in the morning, me and you walk into a bank robbery. Best case, best case scenario, there's a guy walking out of a bank, guns are blazing, right? Mm -hmm. Me and you kill the guy. We get into a gun battle, we kill the guy, right? 100 witnesses saw it, right? It's a good shooting, if there ever is such a thing as a good shooting, but that's what we call a good shooting. No problems whatsoever, right? Bad shooting's bad for business. So what happens is we get interviewed by a sergeant, a lieutenant, a captain from the borough, internal affairs detectives, a district attorney is going to show up at some point with a stenographer and take a statement. If we kill that guy at eight o'clock in the morning, we're not going home till like three, four, five o'clock in the morning. We could be there close to 24 hours, if not longer. Wow. And then, and then within five days, that district attorney is going to run witnesses and us before a grand jury to see if our actions were justified. So you're sitting there between 16 and 23 people in a room they're having a bad day and they don't like the police and they're like, you know what? Screw them. We're going to, we vote to indict. Guess what? You're getting arrested. You get your guns and shield taken from you and you got to hire a lawyer and pray to God. You go, you get a bench trial where you get a sympathetic judge. So it's not like TV, like cops are crashing cars and it's no big deal. You start crashing cars. You'll be on foot for the rest of your life. Like, mm -hmm. and I've seen that happen with guys that keep getting into car accidents. Sometimes it's not even their fault. They don't want to hear it. So, yeah, with civil liability and, and shootings and everything else, it's not like, you know, you get a smack on the wrist and that's the end of it. It's it's that it, it, there's checks and balances in play. So in terms of your own experience, then, did you find yourself in that that kind of soup on numerous occasions? Was it one time? Was it never? How did it work out? More than I'd like to more than I'd like to admit, I was an active cop. I was in, I was involved in a lot of things. I've also had friends. I've never, you know, had to, had to discharge my weapon, but I've had friends that have killed people. I've had friends that were shot. Um, I've had friends that were killed. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot going on in New York. I mean, you've got 35,000 NYPD members at any given time, and you've got 9 million people scattered across the five boroughs. Right. So, I mean, it, it's nonstop. But you didn't ever discharge your weapon. I, I think that's something else that, is perhaps a myth, but like how many, like give, give us like your best guess, rough percentage of officers that never discharge their weapon. Most. Most. Probably, I mean, probably 
probably less than 5% of NYPD cops retired ever discharged their weapon. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the idea of guns blazing, like we'll tend to see on television and movies, that's, that's rare. No, they, and, and the reality is 99% of cops are more afraid of getting in trouble than getting killed. Mm. I mean, I never, me and my friend, we never considered getting, especially when we were young, you never, you wouldn't be effective in your job if you thought you could face your own mortality. As you get older, you start thinking about it. But no, my first 17, 18 years, I, that wasn't going to happen to me. Does that protect you? The mindset? Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, I, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because we talk about mindset a lot. For, you know, with law of attraction, you get mindset as, as like the top thing to talk about. And it's fun to kind of apply it to various aspects of life. You know, what happens when you have a, a certain mindset in this area or in that area? And, and most of us, of course, have um, no real association other than television movies, but, you know, with what the mindset and what the activities are of a police officer. So that's why I'm kind of curious to know, okay, so what is your mindset? What are you thinking about? Because, I mean, just talking to Neil Positivity, who does the Friday show with me, he was a Camden, New Jersey officer, and uh, he often makes reference to, you know, chasing bad guys down alleys and so forth. Um, but when he talks about it, he doesn't go into details about, you know, whether he had to kill anybody or anything like that. It was more like just, you know, arrests that he would have to make. And that's the way he would think about it. Uh, and and I, I've always felt that in the years that he was an officer, he never really had a... A, a shooting situation or something like that because his mindset just didn't go that way. And and so his the, the scenarios he was in would play out as a result because of his mindset. And so that's why I'm kind of curious. I think listeners are probably curious to know, you know, to what degree do you think your mindset actually controlled the way events played out? Oh, I mean, I came close a handful of times to shooting somebody and I would have been justified both times. Two that I can remember right off the top of my head. And it was one of those things where one time I gave the person the benefit of the doubt. And I'm so glad that I did. Uh, my partner and I, it was came over as a domestic or some kind of call on a multi-family uh, hall uh, building. And uh, we were at one end of the hallway. We're banging on the door. And another door opened down the hall. And the kid, probably about 17 years old, comes running out of the apartment with a handgun. Ooh. And I just turned and I mean, I don't know, something just the look on his face just didn't match what was going on. And I said, drop that fucking gun. And he dropped it. And it was a toy. He was playing wow. with his, he was playing with his nephew or brother oh, wow. or whatever. And they were playing cops and robbers in the apartment. They weren't in the street, but he went to run out in the hallway. He didn't know we were out there. Right. And running out. And he, he was looking one way. And when he turned, I just saw the look of horror in his face. And it wasn't, I can't explain it, but it wasn't, it wasn't the look of fear like, oh shit, I'm going to get arrested. It was so innocent. And he dropped it instantly. And thank God I didn't have to, you know, I didn't shoot him because, you know, I'd have to live with that. Yeah, you know sure. I mean, even, even if I was cleared, I'd have to live with that for the rest of my life. You know what right. I mean? I would have felt terrible about it. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it can happen. That, that just, to me, that just reinforces the whole idea that mindset makes a difference. Your mindset, however you would define it, from my perspective, your mindset was, I'm not looking to, to do anything to, to flame, fan flames. I'm trying to find ways to calm flames. That's my ongoing mindset. And in this case, I was able to justify to myself on a split second decision no, no, this is a flame to be to be calm. It's not one to be fanned. Yeah, a, another time my, I was driving the sergeant and we rolled up on the street and there was this woman. She couldn't have been 100 pounds. She was running around with a carving knife and she's chasing her boyfriend around mailboxes, through parked cars. And I mean, she wasn't putting on a show. She was lunging at him. Like she was like, putting her weight into it. Like, like you knew it. Couple, yeah, it wasn't wasn't an act. And we jumped out of the car and we're screaming at them, right? The boyfriend runs behind my sergeant and starts crawling up his back, like, <laughs> right? And she comes charging at him with that knife up. And I just, I'm screaming at her and she's not listening to me. And I'm just kind of drawn down and I'm going to shoot her. And another cop 
who I didn't even see had 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 saw the commotion too and jumped out of his car. And you ever watch a football game like when the quarterback is just about to throw the ball and he gets blasted and just kind of gets blasted out of the screenshot? Right. Just before I shot her, another cop blasted her, just tackled. He was big as a bear, this guy. Knocked her in the night, tumbling over. Right. Then the boyfriend didn't want to press charges. My <laughs> father was so pissed. He goes, he goes, you're an asshole. He goes, are you kidding me? Like the guy, the boyfriend like was hiding behind him and almost got the sergeant killed because while the sergeant was turning, trying to get this guy off his back, she was coming at them with that knife. You know what I mean? Wow. He's like, I love her. I don't know. I'm just like, get the fuck out of here. Wow. That's crazy. Oof. Well, that also raises an interesting question uh, because I think anyone who's ever watched any of these kinds of programs, part of the reason they watch it is because they're watching dramas. And what was playing out in front of you there that you were actually in the scene part of was a drama, major drama. It was, it was a potentially violent drama. And we all, I think part of the reason we like dramas is because we're asking ourselves questions like, you know, how did she get into that frame of mind in the first place? You know, what, what was going on that just made her completely lose it? Well, she's a crackhead. What's even, there's a second part of that story. So she gets handcuffed. And actually, it was the cop that knocked her over. He was taking the arrest. So he puts her in the back seat of the radio car, handcuffed, and he left the window down. And we're sitting there talking to the boyfriend, and everyone's calming down. And the next thing I know, I see her with her hands behind her back, flipping out of the window. Like, she came out the window, landed on her head, got up and started running with her hands cuffed behind her back. And we had to chase her again and tackle her and put her back in the radio car. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so far outside of my own experience that I, I, I have trouble even imagining that mindset. I mean, you, you say she was a crackhead. So, okay, there was obviously some sort of addiction thing going on there. But even that, I, I still can't quite fathom how somebody gets in that mindset. I know that it happens, and we certainly see it dramatized, but it's just amazing. Well, you, you, I mean, you have, you know, you have drugs. You have a situation. I don't know if he was cheating on her, but, I mean, domestics can get ugly. Right. They mm-hmm. can escalate. They can get violent. And then you throw drugs into it. And I, I think she didn't care what happened to her or him yeah. at this point. It was, you know, if I can't have you, no one's going to have you. And we didn't exist. I mean, she not all the screaming and stuff. I think she glanced at us once. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she knew we were there, but she didn't care. She was so focused on her mm-hmm. anger, her rage. But that's really what that was. She was, she was rage driven at that point. And when you're in that kind of really negative emotion, that negative vibration, you can't see anything else. That's all you see. And it's going to be true for somebody who's enraged, somebody who's in depression, for somebody who's in any of the really negative, really low vibration emotions. It's just, you, you just can't see anything else. And, and she's a perfect example of that. And that's how we, people get killed or go to jail. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Coming out the other side of 20 years, how effective do you think the criminal justice system is? Now it's broken in many places. Why is that? I saw it. Um, so I got hired in the, in the mid 80s and different boroughs because I made arrests in different boroughs because I worked in different units. So, so some places I worked sometimes some of the district attorneys were more liberal in their thinking. And I used to, I used to ask myself sometimes like after having a conversation with a district attorney who didn't want to prosecute a case or wanted to, um, we call it a D, which means knock it down from like a felony to a misdemeanor. I'd say to myself, why did they even, why, why, why would they, you know, choose a career and become a prosecutor? If you have no interest in prosecuting cases, a lot of them acted, not a lot, but some, acted like they had been dropped behind enemy lines and it was their mission to sabotage the criminal justice system. Really? Interesting. Not a lot, but I mean, it it looks like there's more of it now, but back then, yeah. I mean, I remember it's in one of my books. I locked up these, these three guys with four kilos of Coke on a car stop. And back then in the old days, we didn't test drugs. We sent it to the lab. Hmm. So if you, Locked up somebody with a dime bag of weed or a nickel of Coke, or in the case I had four kilos of Coke, you didn't test it. You didn't mess with it. You put it in a bag and it got sent off to the lab. And within a couple of days, they would test it. 
And I remember being in, you know, sitting down with this district attorney one, one night, it's late. And she's like, well, didn't you poke a hole in it and test it? I go, poke a hole in a kilo? I says, what are you kidding me? You know how my job thinks? If I started messing around with a kilo of Coke, I'd get suspended on the spot. I go, no, I filled out a, well, I don't know if I can prosecute this. So I pitched a bitch. I asked to speak to a supervisor. And it's one of those things where I rarely did it handful of times in my career, because when you go over someone's head, you've just made an enemy. Right. Right. So I'm going to have to deal with her again, either on this case or who knows down the road, I might be down there writing up another case. And I'm going to get her again. And fortunately for me, I never had to deal with her again. But no, she 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 was going to throw the case out right there. Three guys, four kilos of coke. And I asked to speak to the supervisor who wasn't there. They had to reach him at home. He was not too thrilled to be woken up. Then he got pissed off at her. Like, what are you doing? Why are you giving this cop a hard time? So, um, yeah, it, it happened. I'm also thinking about a former co-host of mine, um, Rita Giganti, who was the younger daughter of Vinny Giganti. Oh, I know and- who she is. Yeah, yeah. I, I've seen yeah. her interviews. She's pretty cool. She is. She's very cool. She's a wonderful person. Um, but I've also heard her story. And it was, to put it politely, it was traumatic growing up as the daughter of Vinny Giganti. And I imagine you would, I mean, that's a more high profile kind of thing. But I, I imagine you would see that a lot. Can you talk about what the impact is on people who, through no fault of their own, they're, they're related to somebody who, who's going through some bad stuff and they have to end up taking some of the, the crap themselves. Um, so, okay. So some of our cases were with organized crime figures, right? Mm-hmm. And it was funny because sometimes we'd go to these people's houses first thing in the morning to lock them up. Mm-hmm. And the whole family, I'm sure like Rita probably could explain much better than me. It's they're very anti-government. They're very anti-police. And so sometimes they're either um, they treat you hostile or it's almost like it's like walking into a cult and everybody's going to give the same answer. No one's no one's going to budge. No one's going to. I remember one time we went to lock up. It wasn't my case, but we just got a sign with picking this guy up at Howard Beach and, uh, you know, mobster. And uh, we went to his door at six o'clock in the morning, you know, knock on the door and he comes down. He's like, come on, guys, this early. Yeah, and he goes, um, state or federal? So he said, state. And he's like, oh. So he wasn't as concerned, right? So he figured <laughs> it's a racketeering thing. You could be doing 30 years. You yeah. know, so um, I says, uh, we're not here for you. And he goes, what? But we're here for your wife. It was my wife. And I said, you know that car, that Mercedes that disappeared, that you reported stolen? It was an insurance fraud case. What it was is, we had a camera up on, on, a, on a junkyard, a mob-controlled junkyard. So what they would do is they're called give-ups. So if someone has a car and they don't want it anymore, they, they're not, they can't make the payments on it, or their kid threw up in, threw up in the car on, on a leased car, and they know, or the mileage is over, so they know if they return it back to the leasing company, they're going to get thumped. It's better just to make the car disappear. Mm-hmm. So we had a camera up on a place, so cars would go in, and they'd never come out. Mm-hmm. So we were taking pictures of the license plates. So this Mercedes goes in, it never comes out. And then two weeks later, she reports it's stolen saying, you know, that she last had it on the 15th when we saw it go in on the first and never come out. So mm-hmm. we've got her on insurance for it. So we said, no, we're here for your wife. And he goes, my wife, we go to the car. And he goes, oh, he goes, can I talk to her for a minute? And I said, yeah, go ahead. So he goes into the bedroom and you hear him going back and forth. And she, she was pissed because, you know, it was him. You know what I mean? It was like, it, he's, you know, he's the mobster. He probably told it, bring it to Anthony or bring it to tough, you know, tough so-and-so. So, or had his son do it or whatever, but she's the registered owner. She filed the report and he right. wasn't falling on the grenade. But I mean, it was funny. Like no one said a word, but just like the, the look of daggers she was giving her husband as we took her well, out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's an excellent example. I mean, cause it really is, it can be very traumatic for a family member. And I'm sure she went through some trauma because her husband had taken advantage of, of you know, his, his situation with her. Yeah, it's funny. Like, you're talking about Rita. You know what you should ask her? You know what would be an interesting thing if you ever got her on here again? You should ask her about her uncle. Because her uncle, Father Louis Gigante, right? So the chin had a brother. And it was the perfect, I mean, it was the perfect cover. His brother was a priest and would come see him. And when he called him, they, they probably couldn't or wouldn't tap tap those things. And... 
her her uncle was a big shot in the Bronx. He he um, built those Sebco houses for low income families, and I mean. He was a character. I mean, you should ask her about her uncle because he was an interesting guy. I think he just recently passed, but he was a mm. priest. He was a Catholic mm-hmm. priest for decades. That's really interesting. Yeah. The, 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 the ties are, are amazing what happened with stuff like that. I know in Rita's case, what she ended up having to do, and, and she got a lot of help to get there, was she had to, first of all, just let go of the fact that her father was who he was and just be okay with it. Um, like, you know, nothing she could have done about it, nothing that she could have right. done to change him or anything like that. She just had to kind of let that go and, and also be willing to accept the fact that she would never get a clear explanation about why he behaved the way he did. But until you get to that point, that, that's tough. I mean, he, he's her father. Regardless of whatever else he was, he was her blood father. Yeah. He was, I mean, I, even other mobsters, other families were terrified of him. They were the Ivy League of the mob, the Genovese. You know what I mean? Like the, a lot of the other families had a lot more low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Whereas those guys, I mean, they, they rarely talked on the phone. Rarely. I mean, they'd never say his name because if they got caught talking about him and it came up on a wire, it was a death sentence. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, he was an interesting character. I mean, and he got away with it for many years because... The FBI went to serve him a subpoena decades earlier, and when they when they his, his mother let them into the house, and he jumped into the he jumped into the shower with an umbrella. So they figured, oh, he's he's nuts, you know, he's smiling at them naked in a shower with an umbrella, and they were like, oh, he's nuts, and basically, they stopped looking at him, and that's how he was able to go on and get more powerful because he wasn't getting locked up, he wasn't getting surveilled, you know what I mean? So he was able. To run this shell game. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It, it's just so far out of you know the, out of the experience that any of us have, or that most of us have in our lives. You know, to even be involved with somebody like that. Although it, more and more people are finding themselves. I think this is largely due to the fact that we are now a very technologically internet interconnected world. So more and more people find themselves getting you know closer connections if you will to people who have not necessarily gigantes but um, right, no, I but but people who have you know dysfunctionalities um the, the, one of the more popular terms that has emerged over the last 10 15 years is somebody with a narcissistic personality i mean that the the personality's been around for for generations but only in the last 10 15 years has that become a thing because more and more people are recognizing well i i dated somebody like that or you know i had a father like that or i had you know, a distant cousin or, or my teacher or something like that. Um, well, yeah, so- and, and with the Internet now, I mean, think about it. Like if I wrote these books, right, mm-hmm. it would be difficult for me to get my message out there. So I have to go on podcasts and radio interviews to promote my books. and yeah, yeah. that someone will take a chance on purchasing one of my books. But what it also does is like, to your point, it, it, it connects more people right. and there's more information out there on a variety of topics. You know what I mean? With people and then people, like you said, recognize things more like, yeah, I did know somebody like that once and he sounds just like this person. So it is interesting how technology has, has brought us together and, and there's just so many topics and, and interests that people can just with a click become an expert just watching videos and learning about things. Including crime. I mean, one of the most popular genres of podcasts is crime podcasts. Yeah. I mean, and there, there are actually a couple of them that have, have like exonerated people who were, you know, wrongfully convicted of crimes and things like that. And, and you know, people are just like, they, they, they jump all over that stuff. Like, oh, wow. Gotta listen to this. I can't believe what was going on. Blah, 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 blah. It's fascinating to people. So it isn't necessarily part of their lives, but it's becoming more so because they're paying attention to it. Oh, I'm just as guilty. I mean, I, at night, there's a couple of retired mobsters or guys that, you know, no longer in the life that I, I look for them like every day because I find it fascinating. You know what I mean? Like, and I worked in that world. I'm like, I, I click on, you know, I, I, that's how I know who Rita is. I've okay. seen her on a bunch of podcasts and yeah, I thought yeah. she was pretty and she's like, wow, the chin had a daughter that's talking. Like, I yeah. thought that was like the wildest thing in the world. You know, he'd be turning in his grave, but I mean, it's therapy for her. Well, she wrote a book called The Godfather's Daughter. I mean, that's basically how she how she got out there. Yeah, she copes. Yeah, she does cope. Plus, she also has she she is an amazing psychic. 
She she's uh, heard that. Yeah, she. I mean, really good, really really good. She she actually helped to identify um, an illness in another co-host that the, the co-host didn't know about. It came out through a medical diagnosis a month later. I mean, just mind blowing. <laughs> I'm paranoid about my health. I might have to hit her up. <laughs> she's really good. She she and she's a kind person. She's really really nice too. Um, uh, well, that raises another question. I mean, and again, something that, that gets played up on uh, media. But is it true? Do do police departments ever use psychics? That That's a good question. So I don't know what an NYPD detective office looks like now because everything's mm-hmm. computerized. But in the old days, there'd be if you walked into like the squad, the detective squad, there'd be phone numbers all around the room. It's like almost like... We, when you go into like a grammar school and you've got the ABCs in cursive, right? right? So like on the walls would be all these phone numbers of different resources that detectives could just pick their head up and give this guy a call, right? This is before cell phones with numbers restored. And I remember in my precinct, there was an, I remember one day seeing psychic and I started laughing, right? So I asked one of the old timers there, you know, who had done a lot of homicide. And I said, um, psychic and he goes yeah and i says what's the story with that do you ever call them he goes that's he goes that's a wing and a prayer he goes that's he says he says that's the last thing we'll do like dead ends it's not going anywhere it's you know you know other cases are piling up let's just give this a shot he says because what will happen is he says, if we call and we get this person to come and ask them questions and see what they say, he says, we got to do a report for that mm. because that's going to go in that homicide file. And if we wind up catching the bad guy another way, a defense attorney's going to go, it, what kind of case is this? You call the psychic? You know what I mean? Like, if you that desperate, you called the psychic, and now you threw handcuffs on my guy, and you're charging him with a homicide. He goes, it will muddy the waters, possibly. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, if a defense attorney picks up on that, because during the discovery phase, you got to hand over all your paperwork. Right, hand right. Back. So if that five is in there, which it should, if you, you know, if you do a five for that you call this person and, 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 and utilize them, so he told me, he says, it's a slippery slope using psychics. Not because of whether or not the psychic is any good, but because of the way the system works. Well, I think, I think both. Both. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's bad psychics. Out. <laughs> you know well, I'm I sure think? there are. Well, I, I mean, I think most people who've ever, uh, who are the kinds of people who go, you know, consult with psychics will tell you, yeah, well, I, I talked to five psychics. The only one that was any good was X. The other, the other right. five were just a bunch of crap. You know, so certainly there are a lot of uh, fake psychics out there. There's no doubt about that. And well, also from what I know about psychics, psychics, it, it's not like somebody is, you know, a voice is saying, okay, um, if you go underneath the sidewalk at uh, the corner of A and B Street, you'll find a body under there. That's not the way it works. <laughs> they get an impression. They're trying to interpret the impression. How good are they at interpreting their own impression? That and that can create all kinds of ambiguity. It doesn't mean that they're 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 lying or that they're deceptive. It's just that, that they're, they're working on so little information. So they got the slash, and that's about all they got to work with. So it's, yeah. it's not surprising never, me that they. Could I never work. used one. I don't know that world. It sounds interesting, but I don't know much about it. I've had a number of psychics and mediums on, on the program, and, and they're really interesting people, and, and they're very often able to, to nail stuff and so forth. But that's the other thing. Even they can't tell you when they're going to get a flash or something. It's not like they can get it on demand. It's not like going to the convenience store. you got to order a, you know, a quart of milk or something like that. It's like it's a hope and a prayer in terms of whether they'll get information at all. They just don't know. Right. It's like a thought that just jumps into their head. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff, but it does create interesting conversations. I think that's what all of this is all about in terms of why I decided to have you on the program because you, I mean, my goodness, it's got all these great stories to talk about. Well, you know, thanks. We, we like to have stories. We're, we, we as human beings are story oriented. Everything in all the entertainment in our life is about stories. The news is about stories. Politics is about stories. I mean, stories just like permeate everything. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, crime shows, police shows are so popular because they're just loaded with stories. James Bond and all this other kind of stuff. It's just story, 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 story. Um, but it's 
different to live it. I mean, you have stories to tell. You've written four books so far. You got a fifth one you're working on. But when you're living a story, it's different, isn't it? I mean, later on, you can tell us, tell the story. You can kind of put it all together with a nice bow on top. But when you're living it, 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 it it's messy and it's, it's unclear and muddy at times. And, and you're trying to make sense out of it. Uh, see, I didn't look at it that way because I, I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. Like I like to tell a story. I used to go into the post office at 10 years old and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. And then Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We would go into the de- and then we go into the deli and do manhunt. We're ten years old with FBI wanted posters going around the neighborhood. Like that could be him. You know I, mean? like, I knew what I wanted to do. You know what I mean? Like I had no fear or reservation of becoming a cop. But it's 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 I I was all in. I had all my chips in. My parents wanted to kill me after high school. Like they wanted me to go to college. I didn't want to go to college and. My father wanted to choke me because his thing. He always used to say and 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 then and then what. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I know you want to be a cop. He goes, what if you don't pass the psychological? What if they do an x-ray and there's something wrong and you can't? And he goes, you're killing time. He goes, for a job you may or may not got, have. And I says, I, 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 I'm getting that job. I'm telling you I'm getting that job. And it's, 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 I'm lucky enough I'm just one of those rare people that I, I, I knew what I wanted to do at an early age and I got to live it. And now I get to live it again. I'm living vicariously through myself writing books about right. my experiences. So I, I didn't look at it as messy back then. Yeah. It was things messy. Yeah. But I, I just couldn't get enough of it. I mean, I, probably, no, no, I get that. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, 25 I, years with overtime at least. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I always worked overtime. I just couldn't get it. They had to throw me out of the door. Sometimes I loved it. No, I, I didn't mean that your story was confused. I, no, I've no, got, I I got the very strong impression. You knew exactly what you wanted all along. And I love that you, that, that you felt that way. I'm just meaning that, when you're in the midst of like you're pursuing a case, you're pursuing, you know, you're trying to track down a potential felon or whatever. Um, it it's easy later on to to say, okay, it was this, 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 and this, and this is what the result was. But when you're in the middle of it, you don't know what the result is. You don't know where it's all going. You 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 know what your procedures are that you follow, but you don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know what's going to happen around the next alley. You don't know what's going to happen when you make the phone call. It's there's a lot of unknowns, and I was trying to suggest that those unknowns attract us they're interesting to us they entice us they get they get our, our attention going but trying to trying to treat it as a story while you're in the middle of it is kind of crazy because the story's still playing out you don't know how the story goes yet yeah uh, it's it's the, for me it was the chase it was the action it was the excitement it was puzzles and riddles and trying to figure them out and you know I remember sometimes I I one of the, I do it to this day when I can't figure something out I, I take a step back from it Mm. And then I come back a day later or an hour later and I want to look at it through a different lens. I'll take a walk. I'll play with the dog, something to get my mind off it. And then I'll come back. You know what I mean? And, and I, to this day, think about cases where I could have done something better or I should have done this. And I mean, these cases are long gone. The statute of limitations are expired. Mm. And I was just walking the dog the other day and I was thinking about something. And it just like... I got to let it go. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I'm tired 15 years. This isn't helping anybody, but it's still playing out in my head. And I guess that's why I'm able to write these books because of my memory. Well, it sounds like the writing of the books actually helps you get the memory out too. So it yeah. doesn't keep, you know, haunting you in a sense. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when you can get it out, when you can express it, it takes, it takes the power out of it. It, it, it gives you power over your own mind rather than your mind having power over you. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Definitely. Yeah, it, it's um, it, it, it's mental health. <laughs> oh, yeah. Writing is, de- for me, writing is definitely a form of therapy because I get, I get to think things out, you know, and then I'll write a story out and then I'll go back to it and I'll change things around and I'll move things around. Or I, I must sound like a lunatic, but one of the last things I do before I send my book out for a copy edit is... I mean, and I've gone, I've combed through it many times. One of the last things I do is I, I read it out loud mm-hmm. and reading, reading something out loud. If you write something and you read it, you're like, yeah, that's fine. If you start speaking it, you go, no, that's, that's, that, that, that's not coming across right. That's a great approach. I love that. Yeah. Cause I mean, well, part of the, the challenge of writing something is like you say, you want to have somebody else doing some editing because you need that, that third you know, viewpoint, so to speak. 
but part of it is when you're reading your own stuff, I, I, I've written one book and I edited another book and you, you, you can just get in an endless loop. Yes. Edit, edit, write again, edit, write again, edit, write. And it's like, at some point you have to decide to stop. (laughs) I think that happens with new writers too. You're right. Because it's, it's analysis paralysis. Right. And what I learned is once I've gone through it X amount of times and then read it. And the funny thing is I got 120 pound Irish wolfhound walking around in here somewhere. He does not like it. When I start reading out loud, I got all out of the room. He'll start howling at it because it's like, he's, who's, who's he talking to? You know he's what I mean? Like, like, I lost my mind. Yeah. And, but, and I have two editors. So if one is a copy edit, I'll send it out. It'll come back with the track changes and I read through it. Copy editors don't get my sarcasm. So I have to say, nope, that's really what I meant to say. You're being too literal. Accept, accept those changes. And then when I'm done with that, I send it off for a proofread and then it comes back. And then I, you know, so you got down to disagree with the changes and then, you know, I'm yeah. ready to upload it onto Amazon. That's nice. That, that, well, you, you got it down to a, a science there. That, that's, that's a sign of experience. All right. So we've, we've, we've kind of danced around a lot of this stuff. We got you to tell one or two stories, but I want to hear a few more stories. So what would you like I, to hear? Well, just before we got started, you were talking about, you asked where I'm from, and, and I said I'm from Hartford, Connecticut area, and you, you started going into a story. So tell that story. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. Okay. All right. So it's um, early 2000, maybe 99, 2000. We had um, a Chinese national in Brooklyn who was exporting 30 stolen Audis a month to Shanghai. Wow. And he got in touch with this Jamaican middleman from the Bronx. He would pay the Jamaican middleman $5,000 a vehicle. The Jamaican guy would pay his car thieves between $500 and $1,000 a vehicle. Cars would get stolen across the five boroughs, Long Island, Connecticut, Westchester, Rockland, you name it. Because they were doing 30 cars a month. They they would take these stolen cars. They'd park them on the street. They'd let them cool off, make sure they didn't have low jack or GPS. They would go to the warehouse a couple at a time. They had Chinese nationals working in the warehouse. They'd put two stolen vehicles per shipping container. They'd let the air out of the tires so the car would sit low. Then they'd build a wooden frame above it and put another one or two cars in there so they were getting three to four stolen vehicles per shipping container. Wow. Then they'd call this legit trucking company, and they'd give them a bogus manifest. The container with the four cars would go out to Newark. Out in Jersey, they'd get loaded on trains, and then they'd get railed across the United States to Shanghai, China. Um, to Long Beach, California, they put on cargo ships and shipped out to, uh, to Shanghai. So That's unbelievable. Had, I mean, that that alone right there is just amazing because you've got these legitimate carriers involved in something they don't even know what they're involved in. No, no, and they changed the VIN number. If, if memory serves me correctly, they were changing the VIN numbers. I don't. It, this is over twenty years ago. So what winds up happening is we've got Chinese detectives monitoring the Asian wiretaps. We've got Spanish cops monitoring the car thieves' uh, phones, and they start talking about whacking this one and whacking that one, and we're like, oh, shit, like these guys are in the murder-for-hire business. So one one of the guys in the case committed a homicide. Well, two, there's a bunch of them involved in the planning of this, but and don't quote me on it. It's over 20 years ago. I wasn't that involved in that in that particular case, but... Ten years before, there were three guys knocking off banks or armored cars, I forget. One guy gets caught, keeps his mouth shut. This is up in Hartford, I think. And one guy goes to jail, and the other two guys don't, if I, if, if memory serves me correctly. And he gets out of jail years later, goes to his two friends and says, I want, you know, my share. And these guys had taken the proceeds um, from the bank robberies or whatever they were doing. And they were major players in Connecticut moving weight. Like if you wanted a kilo of Coke or heroin, you went through these guys. Well, they treated this guy who just got out of jail as a lackey. Go collect money from this one. Go beat up this guy. Go whack this guy. He didn't like it. So he kidnapped one of their couriers, and he put the guy in the trunk of his car for a weekend. Wow. Tortured the guy, took the kilos, and sent him back with a message to his two old friends and said, tell them I'm not fucking around. Mm. So now he's got to go. Right. So in the drug world, there's no back and forth. There's no mediating. Someone's got to go. So the guys in Connecticut got in touch with our car thieves before they were our car thieves. And they set up a plan. They followed this guy around on a motorcycle. And when the guy stopped at a light, 
one guy was on the back of the motorcycle. He emptied a, a nine millimeter into the guy, like wow. him in a Swiss cheese. They drove off with the motorcycle. They put the motorcycle in a U-Haul truck and closed it while everyone's looking for a motorcycle. They go down I-95 with the, with the motorcycle. They throw the gun in a river, get rid of the bike. I don't know if they tagged the bike or chopped it or whatever they did with it. But one of our thieves was the getaway driver on multiple homicides. And we knew this. So once we took that case down with the stolen vehicles getting shipped to Shanghai, it's like, you know, you're going to jail for murder, right? And then he started singing like a bird and was able to fill in the pieces. I drove him to this homicide. I drove him to that homicide. He got a sweetheart of a deal. I think he got um the getaway driver did like 10 years for the enterprise corruption thing with our case. And then for the homicides and um, the, uh, the shooter, we got a conviction up in Hartford federally. And then he, then they brought him into Manhattan and the Manhattan DA's office got him for like three, four homicides, but he's probably responsible for more than 10. I think one of the things that people ask themselves when they hear about characters like this is how on earth do they get there? How do you end up becoming a person who is that merciless, that, you know, cruel, that, just a horrible human being. Do you have any insight on that? I mean, I don't know if you ever actually see that progression, but. There's been people that I've dealt with in my NYPD career, either I arrested or was surveilling or just had a deal with. And I've seen it after I've retired. This, I, I, I can pick up on it and I'm not a psychic like Rita. They look right through you. I can't explain it, but there's no connection when they look at you when they talk to you there's no fear in their eyes um they don't look at you they, as they're a, basically taking you away from being a human being you're, you're yeah you're, not, you're just a, a factor or it's the same as you stepping on an ant pile mm -hmm. you know what i mean they just it's and it's scary i've run into it like not being a cop you know down here in mm -hmm. florida a couple of times i've run into somebody and i've gotten a bad vibe off of them like mm -hmm. this is not the type of person to screw around with or they just, it's, you can tell that, and I don't know if that means like they would snap and hurt you or if you wrong them that they would, you know, plot your demise until they found the right opportunity to, you know, get you. But uh, that guy in that case was one of them. And after we had arrested him and charged him with a homicide, his girlfriend had a car that had, was stolen and I grabbed her with the stolen car after he was in jail. And we, you know, grabbed her with a stolen car and I was debriefing her and I was trying to get, cause you know, he's living with her. He can, she can fill in a lot of blanks. You know what I mean? Cause I'm sure there was pillow talk and she would not. And she goes, listen, you do whatever you got to do to me with that car, you know, because we were going to charge her with the car. She said, she goes, I'm not, she goes, if he ever got out of jail, I go, he's not getting out of jail. She goes, I'm not getting involved in like, she would not. We could have given her 10 years. She was not, she was that afraid of him. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't love. You know what I mean? It, it was right, fear. Right. Yeah, pure fear. It, it, it's really a, an incredible thing. Now we're talking about very negative emotions here, but it's really incredible thing. Just how emotionally driven the human race is. I mean, you particularly are seeing it uh, in the stories that you're telling, but reason doesn't enter into a lot of stuff where humans behave. We like to think that it does. But it really doesn't. I mean, there's a perfect example of it. She, she wasn't reacting rationally. She was reacting, I'm just terrified of this guy. Well, she was in survival mode. Yeah. She was that afraid of him that it was, you know, in the off chance he gets off on a technicality, she knew him that well and she was that afraid of him that she knew he would hunt her down and get her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess that in that sense, there's a certain degree of reason involved in it, but but it was clearly driven by by the fear. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that, that's a good story. We got time for one more. Give us one more story. Pick, pick one that like to you is like that. That's, that's the story. That's the one that stands out above the rest. But what do you want to hear? Like funny or your pick? All right. Um, in my book, NYPD Lauren Disorder, there's a chat. The opening chapter is called embarrassing moments. And every author likes to paint themselves as a hero in their story. They save the sure. day in the nick of time. Okay. So that, that arrest I was telling you about earlier, I stop a cab. There's three guys in the backseat of the cab, four kilos of coke. 
So I'm parading around the station house with the, the four kilos like I won the Stanley Cup. Everybody <laughs> smoke up my ass, taking photos of me with the coke. <laughs> Big deal. Everybody's telling me I'm going to narcotics. You know, I'm believing my own press clippings. So that night, before I speak to the district attorney, um, there's a food court across the street from the Bronx Courthouse. So, and it had just opened. So I'm like, great. They had a little Italian restaurant in there. I'm going to get some food. I'm sitting there. I'm in my uniform. I'm all puffed up. I'm, you know, reflecting on these arrests. I'm eating my chicken parm and spaghetti or whatever I was eating. I've had a bad stomach my whole life. The next thing you know, I'm like, oh, God, I got to use the bathroom. I got to take a dump. Mm. The bathroom across the street in the Bronx courthouse is a dungeon. It's filthy. There's no toilet paper there. I'll use this brand new food court bathroom, right? Yeah, sure. I walk in. I take off my gun belt. I hang it on the hook in the stall. I drop my pants. I sit on the bowl. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And the next thing I know, I hear through the front door of this bathroom, the door kicks in, and I hear four or five teenagers, and they're roughhousing. They're hitting the hand dryers. They turn on the water. They're beating each other up. Kids screwing around. So I go, I better hurry up and finish. Yeah, I'm a cop. I'm in uniform, but I got my pants down and my ankles. I'm kind of vulnerable, right? Mm. All of a sudden, it gets quiet. I'm like, did they stop? Did they leave? And something told me to look up. And when I looked up, one of the kids had gone into the next stall. He jumped up on the toilet and he's reaching over the stall trying to grab my gun belt. Wow. So I said, oh, shit. So I jump up with my left hand trying to pull up my pants. And with my right, I grab him by the neck and I pull him. Well, when I pull him, I inadvertently pull him over to my gun belt. And now he got my gun belt. Oh, my God. Oh, shit. So now I let go with my left hand. My pants go down to the floor again, right? <laughs> and it's a hockey fight. I'm punching him in the face, let go of the gun belt. His friends run into the next stall. They grab his legs. And I got a tug of war going with the gun belt, with, with, with the kid. Right? Finally, he drops the gun belt. It falls to the floor. They go running out. I pull up my pants. I hook on my gun belt. I go running out into the food court. They're gone. And like I write in the book, what was I supposed to do at this point? Call the police on myself? <laughs> the Bronx is a small place. The cops that showed up would tell everybody. Of even course. Fought them. And I would have been the laughing stock of the Bronx. Like, you see that cop over there? That's the guy who he almost lost yeah, his yeah. gun in the store. So I kept that story to myself until I wrote NYPD Law and Disorder. And that's the opening <laughs> chapter, embarrassing moment. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, that is embarrassing. And it's embarrassing and it's terrifying all in the same moment. I mean, it you was got, terrifying. You got multiple emotions going on there. And they're, they're kind of in conflict with each other. Although I imagine that the terror probably was more motivating than the embarrassment part at that point. 50-50. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I have to tell you, Vic, this has been really fun. I've, I've enjoyed interviewing you, and, and I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed hearing your story and so forth. Um, you have uh, the, the four books so far about your experiences as an officer. Tell us the titles and how they can be found and all that. Sure. So... You got NYPD law and disorder. It's got a picture of a cop scratching his head with a bad guy escaping out of the backseat of a police car. That happened. Um, and that's, just, that's the book that's got the toilet story in it. Um, NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. That's a behind the scenes look of what goes on in the NYPD. The NYPD's flying circus, cops, crime and chaos. That's about wild stories about guys I work with, including a guy that stole a horse and carriage to a ride through Central Park. <laughs> that, no, that really happened. That really happened. Yeah. <laughs> Confessions of a Catholic high school graduate. That's about me growing up in the Bronx and me being a little son of a bitch until I figured it out and straightened out my life. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. Everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry and was afraid to ask. And then my first book, Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die, is about the ridiculous things people do to shorten their life expectancy. All my books are paperback. They're ten bucks. They're ten bucks each. They're all on Amazon. So just go to the Amazon book section and type in Vic Ferrari. They'll come up. Um, I don't write in chronological order, so they're all short stories. They're great travel books. They make great stocking stuffers. They're two ninety nine ebook download. That's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Two more things I got to tell you. First of all, number one, um, on behalf of everybody who's listening, uh, I know Neil would love me to say this too. Um, thank you for your work as a, as a first responder because well, you're you. one of the people who have, you know, really done great things to help people in, in a number of ways. 
Um, and then something I make a point to tell all of my guests, and this is true for you too. You have told your story to many people who, you know, they, they, you'll never meet them, you'll never see them, but your stories affected people. They help people, they, they perhaps entertain them, they gave them new perspectives and so forth. And I think we all, uh, those of us who are in this giving type of an industry, um, deserve recognition for that. So on behalf of those people you'll never meet and never see, thank you for what you've been doing, uh, both as a first responder and as an author. We, we all really, really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, I really do. So thank you for joining us. Thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. And we'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody.